0: You take your Bibles and turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, As we continue this morning, our sermon series through the book of Ephesians called Identity Matters. Uh, There are many things that people can place their identity in. Your identity could be bound up in being a husband or a parent. Uh, Your identity could be bound up in your career, in your possession, uh, even in the clothes that you wear. But the book of Ephesians is revealing to us that for Christians, our primary identity is bound up in Jesus Christ. Through Christ, God has rescued us from sin and Satan and death, and he has adopted us into his family, so we're now children of God. He has united us with other believers so that regardless of ethnicity, culture, gender, background, socioeconomic status, we're all to be regarded as one new race, one new family, one new humanity with Jesus. Jesus at the head of that humanity, that is our identity, our new identity. And this is very important to get because whatever you regard as your primary identity, whether that's uh, in being a spouse or being uh, a parent, or if your identity is in your job, uh, your life is going to revolve around that thing. It's going to control every single decision that you make in your life. And therefore, if you're a Christian and you really want to grow in your faith, if, if you're struggling, for example, with just reoccurring, besetting sins, and you really want to break free from them and walk in greater degrees of holiness and Christ-likeness, it is critical that you hear what God is telling you through the book of Ephesians. Because getting a, a better handle on your true identity in Christ, what you were, what you are now, and what you're to become, getting a handle on those things to the the point where it's not just head knowledge, but it sinks all the way down to your heart, that's going to be totally life-changing. So let's dive into what the Word has to say to us this morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, we're going to start at verse 17. And uh, even though we're only going to have time to to look at uh, maybe the first three verses, I'm I'm going to read a few more verses just to help us to, to get the sense of where Paul is going here. Word of God says, Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven... We thank you so much for your life-giving word, and we thank you for the truth that is in your word. And Father, I pray that this morning, the truth of your word would shatter the lies that we've been believing. That we've been believing about ourselves, that we've been believing about our lives, that we've been believing about you. And that the truth, then, would set us free. Bless the, the reading and the preaching and the hearing of this word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. As Paul continues to teach us about our present identity, he deems it critical that we remember our past condition. Paul never wants us to forget the past because our present identity is better understood against the backdrop of what we used to be. And so, as you see there, he says in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, now, when he says walk there, he means he means your way of life. Now, it's interesting that he uses that phrase Gentile because many, if not most, of the people in the Ephesian church are actually Gentiles, uh, racially speaking. But spiritually speaking, they have assumed a new identity. They were once like all of the Gentiles. They were pagans. They were bound up in sin and idolatry. And Paul's saying, because you're a new person, you must no longer walk as you used to. And Paul's going to give a very vivid and sad description of what we used to be and what really is the condition of all of humanity outside of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that Paul says is that before we were Christians, we walked in futility. We walked in futility. Again, look at verse 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, what does that mean? What does futility mean? Uh, Futility means uselessness. Uh, It it means pointless. Uh, The Greek word can actually be translated as meaningless, meaningless. Uh, The word refers to the emptiness of human endeavors where people seek to bring lasting satisfaction, but in the end, those endeavors bring nothing. They fall short. And Paul says that this is the lifestyle of the unbeliever. Now, um, if you're a child of the 60s, uh, or, or maybe the 70s, you remember this, some of, some of you uh, older folks, uh, you'll probably be familiar with the song that was so eloquently sung by Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, where he said, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, I'm sure that Mick wasn't trying to philosophically analyze the human experience, but whether he knew it or not, he stumbled onto something that accurately pinpoints the human condition. That song is the theme song of the human experience apart from God. He says, I can't get no satisfaction because I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. Like I said, very eloquently sung by Mick Jagger. And the, the spirit of the song captures that that futility of of human existence disconnected from God. And who knew that Mick Jagger and the Apostle Paul could be in agreement about something? But long before Mick Jagger, someone wiser and more reliable actually came to the same conclusion. In the Old Testament, King Solomon opens the book of Ecclesiastes by saying, absolute futility— absolute futility. Everything is futile. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. It's chasing after the wind, Solomon says. And Solomon was in a position to understand this better than Mick Jagger. Solomon was way rich, richer. He was way more powerful and had way more opportunities to pursue any kind of endeavor, any kind of project, any kind of pleasure that he wanted in his relentless quest to satisfy himself apart from God. Solomon goes on to say, I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good, but it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness, and about pleasure, what does this accomplish? all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And throughout the whole book, Solomon describes this restless pursuit of fulfillment detached from God. And in the end, he says it it turns out all to be futile and meaningless and vain. And so the Apostle Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Uh, the, The futile mind thinks about life in a way that drives you down paths that will never bring the lasting satisfaction that we so desperately crave. Uh, All believers walk the path of Solomon in their own way. All unbelievers do, uh, arrogantly thinking that they have no need of God and that true life is found elsewhere. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the prophet writes about the empty idolatry of the people and says, thus says the Lord, uh, what what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness? Uh, in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word "worthlessness" is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians four. And, and, and he goes on, Jeremiah goes on and, and, um, and quotes God as, as describing the worthless futility of sin. Uh, Jeremiah 2:11, God says, "My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit." Uh, and, and so what was their glory? What, what was it? God. Uh, Everything they needed for life was found in God and they foolishly traded it in for something else. They, They foolishly traded God out for idols that do not profit, things that are futile and empty. And then in the following verses, Jeremiah, still quoting God, describes the most shocking thing about sinful, futile thinking. God says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is not only shocking, it's, it's horrifying. It actually is madness. When you consider the image of a people in a hot arid desert region where water is a scarce commodity, and it's a life-or-death situation, and in the middle of that desert is a refreshing oasis, a fountain of cool, refreshing, life-giving, life-saving water, and instead the people turn their backs on the fountain, and they make cisterns, and more than that, they make cisterns that are broken, And so even if you manage to get a little bit of water into that cistern, what happens? It leaks right out. And so at the bottom of the cistern, all you have is just this nasty sludge. And Jeremiah is saying that that is the essence of sin. That's the essence of futile thinking. Whenever you sin... You're trying to appease your heart's thirst by licking the muddy sludge off the bottom of the cistern while ignoring the life-giving fountain behind you, which is God. The fountain is God. And not only do you insult the fountain by trading him in for your futile sins, but for someone who spends their entire life in the cistern, they commit spiritual suicide, Uh, They'll die of spiritual thirst. That's what it's like for a sinner to walk in the futility of his or her mind. And so, what do you have? You have a world of spiritually hungry and thirsty people pursuing satisfaction in sex. Satisfaction in drugs. In money, in possessions, in houses, in entertainment, gadgets, religion, charitable works, family, food, career, and on and on and on, wanting this thing or that thing to satisfy them, and perhaps even getting some temporary relief and some superficial satisfaction along the way. But guess what? It's never lasting and always death looms on the horizon. But all the while, man distracts himself and busies himself with other things so that he does not have to think about death. And I wonder if one of the benefits about this current global pandemic that we're in, I wonder if one of the benefits is that at least for some, it's causing a big shakeup. There are some people out there who have banked their hopes on the broken cistern of careers, and they just got laid off. Some are banking uh, uh, everything on the broken cistern of their 401k. It's all going down the drain. Or, Or the broken cistern of athletics. Some people worship sports, and even that is being put on hold right now. And there are others who seek life and satisfaction and security in and being physically healthy and, phys- and physically safe. And God is withdrawing that sense of safety and that experience of health. And I think for some people, that's going to be a very, very good thing. Because sooner or later, the end comes. And it doesn't matter... It doesn't matter how much money you've made or how many friends and loved ones you have or how strong your body's been or or how many temporal, physical pleasures you can enjoy. One day, it's all going to be taken away from you. And if your life and your identity has been bound up in those things, you're going to realize one day with horror that you have wasted your life with nothing to look forward to except judgment for your rebellion against God. That's the destiny of every single person who has not found life in Jesus Christ. There is a hopeless futility in the minds of unbelievers, and and that futile thinking leads to a futile life, and in the end, it's a road to nowhere. And Christian brother, Christian sister, God wants you to remember that was once you, and you are no longer to walk in that way. But more than that, Paul also wants us to remember that we were darkened in our understanding. We were darkened in our understanding. Look at verse 18. Paul says the the unbeliever is darkened in his understanding. This does not mean that the unbeliever is dumb. You have unbelievers who are engineers and scientists and physicists and inventors. A darkened understanding does not mean low IQ. It means rather a spiritual ignorance Uh, An unbeliever may be able to grasp something of physics, but he will not be able to grasp spiritual things. And guess what? Consequently, that actually will affect his applications and conclusions about some of the things that he sees in physics. This is why you can have a brilliant biologist or astronomer look at the, the world and the universe around him, and he can see its vast complexity and be amazed by it and learn a lot from it, but the same brilliant scientist will, while on the one hand, never suggest that something as complex as your iPhone would be able to come about by random accidental chance processes without a designer. On the other hand, this same brilliant man would suggest, with a straight face, mind you, that something vastly more complex like the human eye or the human brain or the universe itself also came about without a designer. You have otherwise brilliant people coming to bizarre conclusions about reality. Why? Because their minds are darkened. Paul expounds on this further in Romans chapter 1. He says that man in his unrighteousness suppresses the truth about God that is made plain in creation to everyone so that no one has an excuse uh, for not knowing about God. And yet what does man do with this knowledge of God? Does he seek after God and embrace God? Does he give thanks to God, his creator? You know, some people say, well, if we could just give unbelievers just enough evidence proving the existence of the one true God, if we could just give enough scientific information and data, if we can just win all of the apologetical arguments out there, then they would accept God. And that's simply not true. Unbelievers have all the information and data they need. But Paul goes on to write in Romans 1, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile. There's that word again. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator." And so this results in man doing very strange and bizarre things like worshiping idols of metal and stone or saying that your ancestor was just some sort of amoeba billions of years ago. Folks, naturalistic evolution is just another form of pagan nature worship garbed in sophisticated scientific lingo. Still others will worship themselves, placing themselves at the center of all things. You see, man, on the one hand, desperately craves life and meaning and satisfaction, but man, on the other hand, hates the one thing that can give him those things, namely God, and so man is hell-bent on seeking that meaning and satisfaction elsewhere, even in the things that will ultimately destroy him, things that, in the end, lead to death, which leads to to my third observation about this text, and that is that we are alienated from God. We are alienated from God. Look at, look at verse 18. Paul, speaking of the godless Gentile, says that they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. <clears throat> now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be alienated? It means to be detached, disconnected from, separated from, cut off from something. And what is, what is man cut off from? He's cut off from the life of God, which is essentially the same as being cut off from God. I'm reminded of the book of Genesis when God created Adam and he placed him in the garden and God said that the day that you eat of the, fr- of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that you sin against me, that day you will surely what? You fill in the blank at home. You will surely die. And the day that Adam ate from that tree, what happened? Did he collapse and drop dead immediately? No. He would eventually die physically, but it didn't happen that day. But you know what did happen that day? We're told in Genesis 3.24 that God drove out the man. He drove him out of the garden. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God banished man from the garden and man was barred from having access to the tree of life. Now, those two things go hand in hand. Banishment or exile from God and being cut off from life. The two are one and the same. To be cut off from the life of God means to be denied access to God, denied access to the riches and the joy and the peace and satisfaction that are found in a relationship with God. It means being cut off from the one who spiritually sustains us and empowers us to live holy lives. Jesus in John 17 said that eternal life is knowing God. But now man in his sin, apart from God, no longer knows God relationally. And more than that, he doesn't want to. So, if eternal life is knowing God, and man is alienated and cut off from knowing God, that means that man is in a state of death. And This is exactly what Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 2. Do you remember that? What he told us in Ephesians chapter 2, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's man's destiny left to himself. What is at the center of, of man's sinful obstinance? Well, that is my next point. Uh, Paul wants us to, to remember that we had hardened hearts. Uh, we had hardened hearts. Uh, all of these things that we're reading about, the feudal mind, darkened understanding, the state of alienation, all of it has come about due to, Paul says in verse 18, the hardness of hearts. One commentator writes that to have a hard heart is to be obstinate or insensible. F.F. Bruce defines the hardening of Gentile hearts as the progressive inability of conscience to convict them of wrongdoing. So Christian brother, Christian sister, never forget that at one time, that was you. You had a hardened heart insensitive to the things of God and man's hardened heart inevitably drives him into all kinds of sinful activity, even to the point of sheer and utter recklessness. Look at verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, this does not mean that every sinner is as bad as he could possibly be. It doesn't mean that before you are a Christian, you committed every single kind of sinful act you could possibly commit. And it doesn't mean that an unbeliever never does anything that at least on a surface level could be called good. A sinful person... Apart from God, can do acts of kindness and and help others in need, But, but because the sinner's heart is not bent towards God, those things are not ultimately done for God, and so they fall short of God's perfect righteousness and glory. As the Bible says, anything that is done that does not come from faith in God is sin, And regardless of what man does outwardly, Paul's description in verse 19 reveals the overall trajectory and bent of the heart of the entire human race. And while that sinful rebellion may manifest itself in different ways, some obvious and some less so, all of man nevertheless is bent away from God. And and what Robert Murray McShane said of himself is true of everyone, that the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Paul wants us to know that, left unchecked and unrestrained by the grace of God, that, that sin will manifest itself in all kinds of ways to the point where we are enslaved by it. I particularly appreciated the NIV translation of verse 19. Uh, It's quite vivid, it's quite horrifying when the verse is rendered as saying that they, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Is that not terrifying? One commentator is particularly helpful when he writes that the Greek verb there, uh, having lost all sensitivity, means to lose the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. Because they have become callous or dead, uh, the uh, dead of feeling, the unsaved have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And the reflexive pronoun themselves indicates that the Gentiles' own initiative drove them into immorality. In other words, uh, uh, they're slaves, but they're willing slaves. And so, here we reach the bottom of the downward spiral, Having lost all sensitivity, people lose all self-control and nothing that they do ultimately satisfies them, which is why they have a continual lust for more. And so we come full circle. The feudal thinking, which launched man on a quest to find satisfaction outside of God, ends with a greater thirst and a greater hunger as the things that man has banked his hope on don't quench the thirst of his soul. They just further deepen that thirst. And so the sinner detached from the life of God is on an endless quest for soul satisfaction, a slave to chasing after the wind and drinking from broken cisterns and pouring out his life for things that don't satisfy. Dead in sins, slaves to our own desires, in satanic captivity, unable to help himself with God's wrath on the horizon. But that's not the whole story because the other thing that this text reminds us is is that something has happened to us. Something has happened to us. These few verses have been dark and shocking and bleak as it describes man's hopeless condition. But to the perceptive reader, embedded in these dark verses is a ray of light. And I wonder if you saw it. I wonder if you noticed it. I wonder if you've already considered it is at the very beginning of this section, uh, there are two words embedded in verse 17. The two words are, no longer, no longer. Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, in spite of the futility that Paul describes, in spite of the downward spiral of hardness of heart and a slavish captivation to sin, uh, where, where the unbeliever can't help but live that way because that's who he is, Paul is telling his Christian audience, but you, you must no longer walk in this way. Now folks, that is utterly remarkable and good news. Because if Paul is commanding the Ephesians, To no longer walk in that way, that must mean that unlike the Gentiles, the Christians actually can walk in a different way. You know what that means, brothers and sisters? That means that you are not helpless and hopeless in your struggle against sin. You can't tell a slave in chains to get up and leave his wicked master. He's in chains, he's not going anywhere. But if the chains are broken, if the chains are gone, If you've been set free, then it makes all the sense in the world to turn to that ex-slave and say, now leave this place. Why in the world are you still here? You're no longer chained. You don't have to listen to your old master anymore. You don't have to do what you used to do. Even if for 20 or 30 or 40 years you've lived as a slave, you are now released from bondage and you can walk in a new way, a better way. You see, Paul's command to no longer walk as Gentile slaves do presupposes something. It presupposes that you've been set free. Is that not what Paul has already told us in Ephesians 2? Uh, Where he, again, after reminding us of what we were, dead in our sins, slaves to our passions, slaves to the devil, by nature, children of wrath, he then goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, Paul's command in Ephesians 4 that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do makes zero sense without Ephesians 2. Okay, this is why you need to read Bible verses in context. this is this Links back to what I was telling you guys a few weeks ago that the practical application of Ephesians 4 through 6 is built on the rich theological truths that Paul has, has demonstrated in chapters 1 through 3. Ephesians 4 flows from the truths of Ephesians 2, but more than that, Ephesians 2 flows from the glorious truths out of Ephesians 1. If you go back to Ephesians 1 and look at verse 4, Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. So this is how it works before the foundation of the world. He set his eye on you. He chose you. He chose you an unholy person. He chose you for holiness Therefore, in his love, he predestined you for adoption into his family. And therefore, he sent Jesus into the world to save you from your sins by grace and release you from bondage. That's how it works. And so now, we come to chapter 4, and Paul is essentially saying, Therefore, in light of all of that, You, as God's free people, having been reconciled to God, having been brought back from exile and reconnected to the life of God, now, in light of that, live as free peoples and become who you actually are. That's the message of Ephesians. And so whenever you sin, whenever you go back into walking as a Gentile, you know what happens? You know what you're doing? You're denying your birthright. You're forgetting who you are. And you're denying that something actually did happen to you. You're living a lie. That's why, Christian, you feel so out of sorts when you sin. Because you're not living according to who you really are. And when you sin, you neglect the power that is now in you as a child of God to walk in a different way. So what that means is is that if you are a Christian, you need to listen to this very, very carefully. If you are a Christian... You don't have to be in bondage to anger anymore. You don't have to be in bondage to pride anymore. You don't have to be in bondage to fear anymore. You don't have to be in bondage to lust anymore or covetousness anymore. That was the old way. That was the Gentile way. That was the way of death. So why in the world would you go back down that same old, worn out, futile, tired road that never yielded anything good for you anyway? Some of you keep going back to the same sins over and over and over again because you've done it for so long, and it's like you become programmed into thinking, well, I guess I guess this is just who I am and how I have to be for the rest of my life and that is not true. You don't have to walk that way anymore. That's not who you are. You've been changed into a new creation and it's time to put off who you used to be and to put on that which is new. Folks, Christianity is not about just tweaking a few things in your life here and there. It's not about making a few adjustments to make your sinful life slightly more tolerable, slightly more functional. No, it's about radical life transformation. It's about death to self, death to what you once were, and rising from the ashes a new creation. It is imperative for us to remember why Christ died in the first place. Now, you may say, well, that's, uh, that's elementary, Deemer, and that's Christianity 101. I know that one. <clears throat> I know why Jesus died. He died to forgive me of my sins and, and take, me, take me to heaven after this life. Okay, that's, that's true. Since we were children of wrath, deserving to die in hell because of our sins, Jesus had to die in our place, uh, paying the price for the sins of everyone who believes in him. That's true. But that's not the whole story. Not by a long shot. If if that's all you think about why Jesus died for you, then no wonder you're still tangled up in sin. You you need 2 Corinthians 5.15, and maybe you should memorize this, 2 Corinthians 5.15, you need to to, to read that and memorize that, which gives you the rest of the story about why Jesus died. And there, Paul writes that he died for all. Why? Why? that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus didn't die for you to just, so you could just coast to heaven no different than you were before you got saved. You've you got so many people that are professing Christians and their lives are no different than before their supposed salvation, and that is totally unbiblical. Remember, Paul wrote, remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1? <clears throat> he said that Jesus redeemed us. In other words, he, he purchased us. That kind of language was very familiar to the first century Greco-Roman world, where you'd have someone in slavery, but a kinsman, a family member would come and purchase that person out of slavery. And we were we were slaves, captive to sin and the devil and death. And Jesus purchased us not with money, but with blood shed on a cross. And so now there has been a transfer of ownership. We are no longer owned and held captive by the devil. The Christian instead is owned and captivated by Christ. And we are set free, but we are not autonomous. We belong now to a new master who has a new purpose for us, which Paul describes in Ephesians 2, where he writes that we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. There's that word again, an important word in Ephesians, that we should walk in them. The Christian is a new creation, not a perfect creation, but certainly one that is increasingly moving towards perfection. In fact, that's what Paul's getting at when he talks about, in verse uh, 24 of Ephesians 4, he talks about putting on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And this is why Paul then can command you also in Romans 6 to not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He says, do not present your members as sins uh, to sin as instruments." instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness you're still to be slaves but no longer slaves to sin but to God living for him and laying hold of and embracing your new identity is critical in regards to you really moving forward with the Lord and breaking free from the sins of the past the story is told of Augustine, <clears throat> the 4th uh, the century theologian and bishop in North Africa, who, um, after living a life bound in sexual lust and, and debauchery, and, and he, he was a mess, Augustine was. <clears throat> but after that, he came to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and in the wake of his conversion, <clears throat> he one day was walking down the street where he happened upon a former mistress of his, And upon recognizing her, Augustine did an about face and started quickly moving in the other direction. But his ex-mistress recognized him also and and was calling out, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And Augustine, continuing to move away from her, replied, yes, but it is no longer I. It is no longer I. And that, that anecdote reflects an important truth about you as a Christian. You are no longer what you used to be. And therefore, you no longer have to walk the way you used to walk. You're a free man, you're a free woman, so why walk in a way that was only leading you to death? Uh, now that you're finally free, stop living as a slave and walk in that freedom. And this is where Paul's gonna take us in the weeks ahead as we explore the rest of Ephesians and, and he provides help for us in walking in the newness of life that we have in Christ if you're tuning in this morning as a Christian, that you've fallen back into old sins, maybe there's a besetting sin, and it just keeps coming back, keeps haunting you, keeps just pulling you backwards, and and you feel almost obligated to just keep living in that sinful way. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just, it's become such a part of you, it feels like, that it's almost like you have no choice but to just do it whenever temptation calls. You need to know that there's hope. You don't have to keep walking as the Gentiles anymore because that's not you anymore. When the the temptation comes for you to fall back into old um, patterns of anger, or when you feel the pull to be dishonest, or when you're tempted to covet, or when you're alone in your room sitting in the glare of that computer screen and you're one click away from that pornography that you've been indulging in for so long, brothers and sisters, the time has come for you to say, it is no longer I. It is no longer I. It's time to stop playing games. It's time to stop living a lie and it's time for you to be who you really are. To live according to your true identity, putting off the things that are old and putting on the things that are new. Of course, God has not designed your Christian life to grow and flourish apart from the context of Christian community. And that's what that's what Ephesians 4 through 6 is all about, which means brothers and sisters that even during this national quarantine, we have got to find ways to stay connected with one another in this church uh, through calls and text and emails and various online opportunities that we are providing for us to to connect and grow and pray together through through finding one or two older uh, other brothers or sisters uh, to open up your life to who can fight side by side with you against this sinful pull to go back into your old way of living for them to join forces with you to help you to say to that sin, it is no longer I. Book of Hebrews exhorts the church to stir up one another to love and good works. Part of your new identity is that you belong to a family and and you won't be able to fully live up to your true identity without brothers and sisters by your side, praying for you, helping you, uh, holding you accountable, and stirring you up to be who you really are. If you joined us this morning and you are an unbeliever, I, first of all, I'm really glad that you're watching. <clears throat> and I wonder if this message has hit home for you in any way, because everything that Paul describes in verses 17 through 19 applies to you. you you've been hardened against God, and, and you've been walking in futility, and you know it. You know it. You've been trying to find life and satisfaction in things outside of God, and it has, it has proven to be meaningless and empty. Like, like trying to quench a painful thirst by scraping the bottom of a broken cistern. It's futile. And maybe everything that's been going on in our country right now is for you a good thing. Because it's forcing you to stop and slow down and take serious inventory of your life. And maybe even now you are realizing the futility of it all. And my friend, if that's you, God has a word for you. He says in Isaiah 55 Come, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food, and climb your ear, and come to me, and hear that your soul. May live. What a glorious invitation that is. My friend, seeking ultimate satisfaction, money, possessions, entertainment, sexual pleasures, physical health, career, all of it's ultimately junk food and won't in the end satisfy you and give you what you need. But you know what Jesus Christ says? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Augustine once said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. Therefore, repent of your sins, turn from seeking to find life everywhere else, and, and go to the fountain, go to the one who is the banquet, receive by faith his payment on the cross for, for sins and live for the one who died and was raised so that we might no longer be trapped in, uh, so that you might no longer be trapped in the futility of living for yourself, but to live for him whom we were made for so that whenever you hear the siren song of temptation calling you to go back into those things which only led you to empty futility and death you can turn to those things and you can say, it is no longer I. It is no longer I. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your holy and inspired and precious word that is like food for the soul, that is like nourishment for our hearts. Father, I I pray for any believer that is watching this morning that, yes, they're a believer, yes, they have been saved, and yes, there are areas of their life where there's been change and transformation, but there's other areas of their life where the, their growth is stunted. Father, I, I pray that this word from the Apostle Paul, this word from you, this direct word from you, would be a catalyst for significant change in the lives of many who have been watching and listening this morning and that they may be able to walk in the freedom that you have bought with the blood of your Son. And Father, I pray for any unbeliever who may be watching, listening, that you would draw them to you, Father, and that you would give them the the faith to turn away from the broken cisterns, and to dive deep into the fountain and be saved and be restored and be satisfied. In Jesus' name, amen.